I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and verse 34. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 34. The words of Christ at the conclusion of his great discourse on the destruction of Jerusalem, in effect, and then much, much later, his own return. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. And verse 37, I say unto all, watch. Now we're really going to be studying into chapter 14. But I read these words by way of introduction because it's unfortunate that there's a chapter break here between chapters 13 and 14 and it throws us off the sense, the realisation that the uh, first two verses of chapter 14 really follow right on from chapter 13. Watch! Now, after two days, to follow, two days after Christ uttered those words, watch, and the great discourse about his return, two days later was the feast of the Passover. In other words, that long message was given on the Tuesday of the last week of his earthly life and pilgrimage. On the Thursday would be the beginning of the Passover. On the Thursday, he would allow himself to be arrested and taken. And then those perverse trials. And then his execution, his passion, his hanging on the cross of Calvary. After two days, all this would follow. In Matthew's Gospel, and I'll just read these words, they're so important to us. And chapter 26 and verse 2, we, had, we read these words. We're given the same occasion. Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. That's a little clearer. Mark abbreviates somewhat. And so that crucial fact is left out that Christ foretold that two days later, on the Thursday, he would be delivered up. He would be arrested and delivered up ultimately to the Roman power for execution. Now, we read on in Mark 14 and, uh, chapter, and verse 1, after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Well, they'd done that many times. How should we take him? But now it's different. There is a meeting. Here it's the chief priests and the scribes. Elsewhere, the Pharisees are included. Everybody's there. 
It seems to be, if not a meeting of the Sanhedrin Council, certainly a meeting of all the leading Jewish clergy of the day. Where did it take place? Well, we're told again elsewhere that the meeting took place not in the usual allocated hall in the temple, but in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, in his palace, in his great room. It was a secret meeting. And it was a meeting specifically to determine how they may secretly arrest him and take him. It would have to be done with great cunning because now was the feast of the Passover and Jerusalem was crowded. Verse 2, but they said, not on the feast day or the feast days in the plural from the Thursday through the entire seven days. Not on the feast day lest there be an uproar of the people. Matthew says they feared the people because the people at that moment were for Christ. He was their great prophet, their healer. He healed thousands. Everybody was related to someone or knew someone who had been amazingly healed by him instantaneously. Those who were severely handicapped, whose limbs were twisted, distorted, and shriveled, wasted, had been returned to complete wholeness and health before the eyes of the multitudes. They couldn't possibly take him. He was too popular. So many felt he was even Messiah. They should all have realized that. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He was the perfect son of God, God and man. So the leading clergy who were against him, they said, not during the feast. Well, they weren't going to get it done sooner. Or did some of them think it could be done secretly, privily? And when the feast started on the Thursday, he would be taken, done away with, and in the past. Then there couldn't be a riot to protect him. More likely, it was that they would be plotting how they could take him after the feast. When the crowds dispersed and went from Jerusalem when there was a moment of anticlimax, as it were, and then he could be taken and done away with, secretly, cunningly, but not on the feast day. But Christ had said to his disciples, on the Thursday I shall be arrested and delivered up, and that will lead to my being slain, killed. It was going to be the time of his atoning death on Calvary's cross. It's going to happen at the same time as the offering up of the lamb, the Passover lamb. Well, that's amazing. The Passover lamb, that was a picture of how God would one day take away sin, of what would happen at some time in the future. When Messiah came, and Christ was the fulfillment of that, and within a few hours, the Passover lamb would be, well, it would be killed on the Thursday and formally divided and taken on the Friday, and so Christ would be offered up. 
He said, arrested Friday, leading to his execution. The leaders of the Jews said, no, either secretly, instantly, before the feast, or better, after the feast, whose will would be done? Would it be the will of the men who had the power? The men who would arrange the arrest? The men who would arrange a secret execution? Or would it be the will of the Son of God who said Thursday? Well, of course, it would be the will of the Son of God. They would do it. The Jews and the Romans would do it. Wicked hands would take him and slay him. But by the overruling of God, it would be done exactly when God had determined. This was the moment for which Christ had come. Well, that's just background to what follows in verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 3. And being in Bethany, suddenly the narrative moves back from the point of two days before the arrest of Christ, it moves back from the Tuesday to some days earlier, a week earlier, before Christ actually entered Jerusalem and being in Bethany. So Mark says, he doesn't exactly use these words, but he in effect says, now for a moment, back when he was in Bethany, before he entered Jerusalem, something happened, which I want you to know about. Matthew follows the same plan. Suddenly it's something you must hear. Back in Bethany, before the entry into Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the leper, who is he? We don't know. Obviously lived in Bethany, had a large house there, had been a leper, couldn't possibly be a leper now at the time this was going to happen because he was a host, he was entertaining and lepers were sadly shut away from society. He'd clearly been healed of his leprosy. We're not told this, but it seems to me almost certain he was healed by Christ and he's now a follower of Christ and a worshipper of Christ, and he recognizes and knows him to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, but before we go on to the event, there's 15 people gathered, at least there are possibly more, but 15 people are named. In this gospel, in Matthew's gospel, more light in John's gospel, little more is said. Of course, John, the gospel writer, was an eyewitness. He remembered it very clearly. There were 15 people. There was the Lord, Jesus Christ. He was there. There were the 12 disciples. They were there. There was the host, Simon the leper. And there was Lazarus. A neighbor who had been raised from the dead just a couple of days earlier still. 
the raising of Lazarus. And there were the two sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary. But Martha wasn't at the table, she was serving. And where was Mary? Well, we'll soon find out. Mary was about to do something. Something that the Lord said must be remembered in all the churches wherever the gospel is preached throughout the gospel age that was to come before his return. She was going to do something of enormous significance. Being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, was it a thanksgiving service? A thanksgiving for the raising of Lazarus? A thanksgiving for the healing of Simon the leper at some time earlier? Was it a special supper because they were disciples of Christ and he had announced to the disciples that he was on his way to suffering and death and to be raised again from the dead? As he was there, remember they reclined. They didn't sit on chairs at tables, you know that. There was the mat on which was laid like a tablecloth what was to be eaten and they lay one elbow forward feet behind them reclining at meal that was the culture and the custom of the times as he sat at meat verse 3 there came a woman she's named in the gospel of John it's Mary the sister having an alabaster pot box or container of ointment of spikenard, pure nard, very expensive, worth, they said, 300 denarius, 300 denarii, 300 days' pay, virtually a year's salary. It only grew in distant places, on mountains, and it was pure, purified nard, the most powerful and beautiful scent known to them. And it was used for funerals, for the anointing of kings and people in special office. Tiny amounts of it would be broken open. A precious box would be brought or bottle with a narrow neck and it would be broken and a little bit measured out and the aroma would go everywhere and to the Jewish people in their culture at that time it depicted resurrection life beyond the aroma the soul is gone to be with God and there would one day be resurrection of the body that's what it signified in their culture and she brought a whole box or bottle or flask, whatever it was, of this pure nard. And she poured it. It's called ointment in our translation. But it could be poured. And poured it over the head and shoulders of Christ. And then elsewhere with her hair. This was a very humble thing to do. 
with her hair as though she was giving herself. She wipes her feet with the ointment come oil of pure nard and the fragrance filled the house. Remarkable thing to do. What a surprising thing to do. The disciples didn't get it. What a strange thing to do. And they were even indignant. Mark's quite kind. He says some of them. Matthew seems to imply all of them. John tells us it started with Judas. And that doesn't surprise us. Judas, who never really believed. Judas, who would betray Christ. He was the one who said, what a waste. What a disgusting thing to do. Why wasn't this expensive, treasured up oil kept as a sort of family possession, given for the poor? It would make a whole year's salary. See what good it could do. Ready to be critical. And the other disciples, without thinking, were contaminated by what he said. And they all fell in line and murmured at her. They murmured at her. What a thing to do. She was one of the family of the host. She was sister of Lazarus, who, alongside Simon the leper, and had been a host in their house earlier. Christ had been there with the disciples. And yet they murmured at her, the disciples of Christ. Disapproval. Disapproval. Disgust, even. Verse 4. There were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made and the value of it. They complained about its value. Verse 5, in the end of the verse, they murmured against her. But they got it entirely wrong. And in verse 6, Jesus said, let her alone. Leave her alone. It was a reproof. How dare you say and think that? Why are you troubling her? She hath wrought a good work on me. And that's an understatement. You could equally translate the Greek. She hath performed a most beautiful work. A wonderful work. A good work, yes. If you mean by that, a noble work. Full of meaning and significance. A wonderful thing. She's poured out oil, but she's poured out her love and her devotion and her commitment and her identification with me. She has performed a beautiful work. Oh, dear friends, she had the significance of what she'd done. Mary thought she thought, she reflected, this is my Lord. He's in the house of Simon. Martha 
is making all the arrangements and serving. Mary had no doubt helped her. What can I do? He's on the way to execution. In two days they're going to take him. He's the Lamb of God. She believed it, I'm sure. It's Martha, her sister. The two sisters must have believed the same things. It's Martha who called Christ the resurrection and the life. They believed in his death, his atoning sacrificial death. The disciples hadn't got there yet. They were slower to understand. Until Calvary happened, they didn't understand about atonement. They thought Christ was going to do some wonderful thing and he would rise from the dead and be be an earthly conquering hero and get rid of the Romans and set up an empire on earth and they would be his officers of state and there would be reformation and godly living everywhere. They didn't realize that he was a spiritual saviour. And he was suffering and dying literally to bear the punishment of sin for millions who would seek him and find him and be forgiven by him throughout the rolling centuries. They didn't see it. Mary obviously saw it. He's going to die. What if there's no opportunity to take the body? He'll be executed. The Romans will seize it and dispose of it. There'll be no anointing. There'll be no burial. There'll be no honor done to him. I can do it now. I can do it in advance. This fragrant oil will fill the house. It will represent his ongoing life. His resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. It'll honor him. As I pour out the oil, I'll pour out my own commitment. I shall do it straight away. While the disciples are gathered, while Lazarus, my brother, is here, and my sister, and I shall honor my Lord. She thought the disciples didn't follow at all. They didn't understand it. She was miles ahead of them. She was brighter than all of them in spiritual things. They would soon catch up. When Christ was risen from the dead, he'd breathe on them. He'd impart the spirit to them and a life and energy and understanding and realization they never had before. And they'd be his servants unto death and to even martyrdom execution themselves but right now in that room of Simon's she was the one who saw it all let me give a couple of illustrations dear friends all this is so important to us several times pastors have said to me down the years they had a problem They had a problem even living. The church was blessed. The people were being saved. The Lord was with them. They had supportive officers, elders, deacons. They loved the Lord. 
But there was a problem. Their deacons didn't seem to realize that they couldn't make out. They weren't well supported. Yet the church, the men would complain, the church has, my church has income and giving is good and sacrificial giving. But somehow, my officers don't understand that the pastoral family has needs. And we're desperately short. What should I do? Should I face them? Should I tell them? Should I wait on them? Wait for them to do something? To increase our stipend? To support us better? To offer us expenses? In this area, my deacons seem to be destitute of all imagination or initiative or thinking. Why am I telling you this? Well, just by way of illustration this morning. Just before I go further, it happens too in families. Sometimes mother, she's working too. And yet she's doing all the looking after. And there are teens in the house, teenagers. Oh, they're, they're grand youngsters, boys and girls, older teens perhaps. But now they've got a lot of interests of their own outside the home and a busy program and they're studying and they've got many things to do. And mum, she's completely weighed down and she's having a bad week or two and she's overwrought and she can scarcely cope. Sometimes, alas, the last place she'll look to help is to her teens. In all their vigour and life and buoyancy, she wouldn't be without them. She does everything for them. And they don't notice what it costs. And they don't notice that she could do with some help. They've grown up in so many ways but not altogether in responsibility and in the capacity to notice and to care and to come alongside and to help in that respect they're still children why am I saying this not to exhort anybody this morning but just by way of illustration think of the Lord in two days He's going to be arrested. He's God? Yes, but he's man. He has, he's entered into human flesh. He has human frailties and feelings. He has human tiredness and vulnerabilities. And now he is treading the winepress alone. He must lay his divine power aside. He must submit in obedience and weakness to his own plan, the plan formed by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in eternity, that he would come and be a representative man and live a perfect life and go to Calvary and bear the punishment of all those 
for whom he would die. He has got to face terrible torture. The torture of the Garden of Gethsemane. The realization of all that was about to take place. The torture of abasement and humiliation. The pain of Calvary's cross and the invisible agony of having the guilt of his people laid upon him. And God the Father strike him instead of them. So that by suffering and dying on their behalf he might purchase their salvation for them. And the disciples don't see any of it. And dare I say it with utmost respect to them. They are like big children. Looking to him. Dependent upon him. Taking from him. There's only one person there. Who says. My Messiah. My Saviour needs encouragement, needs solidarity from his disciples, needs understanding, needs even me. And she formulated how she would do it. You see the magnificence of what Mary of Bethany did. The disciples were to do it too. Are you a husband? A Christian husband? You believe the Bible? That the husband is the head of the home? And that's right. And you are. And you are responsible before God for everyone in that home. But don't be like some foolish Christians who think that being the head of the home means that men are superior to women. And they reason quite wrongly. Why do you think it is that in the will of God and under his superintendency, it was a woman who was the only one to see the point at that supper? and to see what was going to happen, and to feel it, and to realize she must identify with Christ, and she must honor him in a special way, and she must give him her love and her encouragement, even little her, and all her support, and all her trust. Why did God so ordain that it should be a woman? It's to wake up husbands who think they're superior. Exercise your headship with great care and never lose go of mutual respect. Never let that go. Mutual respect and love. Well, the disciples didn't understand it. They formed the wrong conclusions. They didn't somehow feel the reality of what Christ had said. Two days left. They didn't stand with him. Most of them would run away when he went to Calvary. Peter, to his shame, 
or deny him. Only Mary of Bethany made this great act and Christ said it was to be remembered as a memorial. Actually, it's a, it was an act of genius. She was very clever. What can I do? Which shows my love and dedication. I've got this box, this jar, vase, this jar sealed a pure nod, a day, a year's wages. I'll give it all. I will humble myself. I will go and anoint him. I will do something that says something. It said something. It said to the Lord, go on, Lord. Go on. I understand what you're doing for me and for millions. I understand it. I won't be able to anoint your body. I do something better. I anoint you now as if I anointed your body. I anoint you, King of kings and Lord of lords. I pour out my love and dedication. I am with you. I trust in you. She knew it depicted all that she's done, says the Lord. Everything she could. She's done what she could. What about us, friends? You look back across life. What have you done? For him. Maybe this is your situation. You remember when you were a student? You remember when you were surrounded by people of your own peer group, your own age? You remember how easily you could talk to each other? And you look back on that and you say, if only I'd known that that three years would be up and gone in no time. And I never really witnessed to all those people. I was good friends with many of them who were not Christians. I didn't say anything. My opportunity, my great opportunity, passed. And I have moments, spasms of deep regret. I think every one of us have had some similar opportunity and we let it pass by in a particular office, in a particular workplace, among certain family members, among certain friends. We only had that opportunity for a season and we let it go. Mary of Bethany was someone who took the opportunity. I'm in this house with him. This is my last opportunity. I must mark solidarity and support and faith and discipleship. I must do it. The disciples didn't. 
If that's our condition, if that's our experience, well, let's make up for it. I didn't really stand for the Lord then. I must do it now. I must teach Sunday school. I must visit in the community. I must witness where the Lord has set me. I must pray. I'll drive my car and pick up the children. I'll be forward. Mary didn't need to be asked. The Lord didn't tell her to do what she did. The disciples didn't tell her. As far as we can see, nobody suggested it to her. She did it. I'm going to be like that. I'm going to think out my duties, my opportunities, what I should be doing for the Lord. And I will do it before anybody asks me. I will offer myself. When the Lord said, let Mary of Bethany and her deed be preached throughout the Christian age. Don't you think it was for this purpose? To challenge us, to move us, to teach us, to be responsible believers and forthcoming. And above all, she did something The disciples should have seen this. She did something, Mary of Bethany, which transparently expressed her love. Something she could pour out over his head and over his feet. Everything you do, if you're teaching Sunday school, and it's a tough day, and it's a difficult class, And you've got some problems. This will sustain you. This will see you through. This is an act of love for the Lord. You are making him known. Yes, it's love for the children too. But preeminently, this is how you have to think. It's for the Lord. When we preach, we must do it for him. To make him known out of debt, our own indebtedness to him. That must be the motivation, the driving force, the energy of everything we do. We do it for him. If it's not done for him, how can it be blessed? Mary and her deed. Verse 8. This is a motto text for every Christian. She hath done what she could. And I have to leave you with this thought this morning. Have you done what you could? What God gave you scope, power, ability to do and opportunity to do? Have you done it? Let's commit ourselves as never before, to him. Let Mary's act, Mary of Bethany, sister of Lazarus and Martha, let it speak, let it move us and cause us to commit ourselves as never before. Then we fulfill the statement of Christ, Verily I say unto you, 
wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial, the Greek word is reminder of her. That's my duty to God and to you this morning, the reminder of Mary of Bethany.